Welcome to The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, receives her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor at California State University, East Bay, and also a philosophical counselor. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes material. Good morning, everyone. It's my great pleasure to have today uh, as our guest for the podcast, uh, The Meaning of Life, where philosophy becomes personal, Shay Welsh. Shay is an associate professor of philosophy at Spelman College. Recently, she was the 2021 uh, Carnegie Corporation and Rockefeller Foundation Distinguished Researcher Creative Scholar. She is the chair of the Association for Feminist Ethics and Social Theory, a founding, more, a founding board member of Tenure for the Common Good, and was a founding contributor to the Howard University Social Justice Consortium. Previously, she was the Gaius Charles Bolin Fellow in, the university, in philosophy at Williams College, she holds a PhD in philosophy from Binghamton University. Her current book is a choreography as embodied critical inquiry, embodied cognition and creative moment, movement, sorry, Palgrave Macmillan. Her recent book is the phenomenology of a performative knowledge system dancing with Native American epistemology. Uh, always will uh, with the uh, Palgrave Macmillan 2019. Her previous books uh, are Existential Eroticism, a Feminist Ethics Approach to Women's Oppression, Perpetuating Choices, Lexington Books 2015, and uh, <clears throat> A Theory of Freedom, Feminism, and Social Contract. Palgrave Macmillan again. She teaches courses uh, of, uh, uh, on freedom, embodied knowledge, embodied cognition, dance, systemic oppression, ethics, sex, feminism, and Native American philosophy. Her professional goals are to support and mentor young women of color in philosophy and to aid the discipline in recruiting and retaining more unrepresented younger, young philosophers. She's especially interested in resisting practices of classism and fighting against stigma related to mental health disorders. Well, with a profile like this, uh, I can't be just excited to have such a productive uh, and uh, feisty. That love. sounded really dramatic and like over the top. I just kept thinking, I, I need to cut that down. That's a, that, that's oh, a no. lot. No, I, I think the title, I mean, the books uh, you wrote, uh, the areas uh, you researched on, uh, it's so interesting. Uh, please, let's start talking here. I mean, I saw, yeah, you worked a lot against stigma. Uh, and uh, you feel very much for uh, unrepresented voices. How did you manage to get a voice of your own in which, uh, you know, you felt uh, heard? Whether or not a, a person or a scholar 
ever feels heard is an entirely different question than how one gets a voice. I think that, mm. I think if, if you would ask anybody else, they would say that I was, I was born with a big voice. So I've just kind of gone around the world screaming my thoughts at people, regardless of whether or not they were paying attention. So um, it's very easy, both as a person and a scholar to not feel heard. Um, as a person, you know, it's always very hard to feel like you connect to other people, just generally speaking. Um, and that can make you not feel heard. Um, as a scholar, you know, there's so much research out there that you always wonder if anybody's reading you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody thinks that they have something really important to say or else they wouldn't be writing it. Um, and so, you know, you always really, really want people to, to listen, like to read you. Um, but everybody's stack of things that need to be read is so long that you, you can't even you can't even beg your friends to do it. You know, they'll get around to it if they can. So there, you know, it's, I always tell people to just say what they got to say mm -hmm. regardless, because it's at the very least cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. I saw in your, um, in your short bio, uh, you said that, uh, uh, where you came from, uh, you felt uh, often uh, uh, looked down upon. That uh, uh, for you, philosophy was uh, a way to be able to talk, uh, to be able uh, be able to be seen. Uh, where did you come from? I mean, I had the feeling that uh, was not uh, so much as a geographical space, but uh, uh, the social context was uh, somewhat relevant for you to get where you are today yeah um one of the reasons why i try to um resist practices of classism and stigma within the profession is is because of where i come from and also because in my experience um not a lot of people come from the same kind of background that I do. Um, I came from a very poor family, um, a very, there was a lot of violence and addiction and jail and um, just general discord um internally and externally so there was always growing up a constant sense of survival survival mode I guess not just for me but for everyone in my family you know the idea of of just trying to survive the world and each other <laughs> um was always a thing and I know that because of like the culture and and class position, um, I just watched a lot of my family members be disrespected constantly by people outside and judged and um, and just treated with general disrespect and, and disdain. 
And um, I feel that a lot of people who come from these kinds of backgrounds get sucked in. And that was always a possibility for me. I had to leave home and early, like in high school. And I had to leave the state and I had to leave my family and I had to cut contact and I had to do a lot of things that weren't easy because I saw myself just being pulled into the same whirlpool. You know, it was like either it, it was get in or get out. And I kind of chose to get out. Um, and then I just kind of wandered the world for a little bit until I found philosophy. <laughs> philosophy in this, because uh, I mean, uh, uh, when you are on a survival mode, uh, it's very difficult to think, right? To enjoy, to lose yourself in a reading and uh, studying is a luxury. How did you meet philosophy? Ooh, I think I've told this story before. It's one of my favorite stories. I always tell my students this story when, when they're crying and complaining about how hard it is. Um, I failed my first philosophy class. Um, in, in a more, you know, given, given the standard social environment of college, I kind of and the only fully, like fully, fully literate person in my family, like not to say that people in my family can't read, but you know, they're in terms of having like a, a broader ability to um, engage materials. Um, but for this reason, right? So school wasn't a big thing where I come from. Um, I didn't know to know how to study, but I also didn't care. <laughs> like I, I just kind of wandered through the world and then I ended up taking an ethics class because I had to uh -huh. and I had this guy bless his heart um he was just the worst teacher uh -huh. like even when I reflect back on it today <laughs> he was great he was fantastic but he was possibly one of the worst teachers I've ever had um he could not stay on on track and instead of going like I think the ethics class was Kant. Like that was my first exposure to philosophy was the, the critique of pure reason. And he loved to just sit around and do um, the German and Greek translations of things. So I just slept every day. Like I had no idea what was going on um, and, and I failed. Yeah. And I swore that I would never take philosophy again. Um, and, and I didn't until I was graduating. God only knows how that happened. Um, I was graduating and like my, I think it was my last semester, I still had to fill my humanities requirement. And there was an ethics class that was, it was the only one available and it was a different teacher. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and I took it and it was more like contemporary ethics and the teacher, while not a pleasant fellow, um, was on track. Uh, and I felt alive. Um, like, I didn't care about him. I didn't care about the other students. I didn't care about anything. I just knew that I was reading this stuff. And it was like, this is the stuff that matters. Like, all of the other things that I did, like, 
English class and history class and sociology and my political science degree and all of these other things like I didn't care about any of them and then I read the stuff and I was like "Ooh, this stuff matters <laughs> and I also have a reply I have a reply like I want to talk too uh-huh. and and I I aced the class it was like the breeziest thing I've ever done and um I decided to stick around an extra year and get a second degree in philosophy. And I just, I plowed through, it was like 21 hours a semester and I made straight A's the whole year. Um, It was, it was just like, it was like, it was, it was the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. I was so deeply happy. Yeah, it was great. The question that uh, uh, stood out more than others or a philosopher, uh, where did you feel the hook? I think that it was just cool that I was reading things that asked me questions and I had uh, something to say. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you do comparative politics, like when you do any other discipline, and I know this, I don't mean it to sound this way, but I've never read anything else in any other discipline and been like, now I have a question. You know what I mean? It just seemed like, okay, I just read something on the Bay of Pigs and there it is. I, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, that's it. Um, and so I just had the best time. Like, I just remember reading everything voraciously. And I did have trouble with Descartes. Like when we did some modern stuff, I had to teach myself how to read because we like to use long sentences. And I remember spending weeks trying to teach myself how to get through a sentence. I know, I know. You know, um, and instead of me thinking this is stupid, I was like, the challenge is real. I must get to the next sentence. Um, it was, it was just a, it was just a different thing. So I don't, I remember one class that had, so I took Indian philosophy. And that's how I originally got into like Indian epistemology and metaphysics, like, like Hindu. Um, and, and I remember reading a lot of Nagarjuna, which is Buddhist. Um, and all Nagarjuna did was negative critiques of all the other theories. And I just was so annoyed because I was like, okay, it's so easy to sit back in your chair and to critique everybody else. But what do you have to say? And he like never said anything. And I would get so frustrated in class that I like made a little note, like I took a piece of paper and I wrote that's trash on it. So that every time they were talking about it, I would just raise my little sign and say that's trash. Cause I got tired of, of being like, what is the point? Right. But even when I was like, what's the point? I was thinking, what would I say? Uh, uh-huh. Like, how could he do better? Uh-huh. Um, and I remember as frustrating as it was, like that was a great class and, and I really loved learning about specifically Hindu philosophy. And you continued, I mean, you explored the different areas in your books. Uh, uh, you worked on uh, Native American philosophy, eroticism, choreography. Will you tell us a little about the voice that you found in philosophy and how you expressed it and, uh, and your passion behind it? Because they are all themes that have uh, also a strong political and social relevance, I think. 
Yeah, it's anyone who doesn't know me would think that I I can't stay on track. <laughs> um, people would, I think that if you put my books out next to each other in a line and just showed it to strangers, they would never attribute it to the same author. I understand, yeah. <laughs> but people who know me, like they know that that's, like they 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 can look at that series of books and be like obviously all of those belong to Shay um so they're all related to my identity and uh -huh. all related to things that I've done um so the first book is about um the failure of of social contract theory to account for the role of social oppression uh -huh. And that that's one of the causes of injustices that feminists are concerned about. And so this came a lot from my, my background, um, thinking about marginalized people, generally speaking, and, and just like the notion of respect and vulnerability became very big trust, right, social trust became very important when I think about like, what, what do I think people need in order to have justice um, as, an, as an equal social member? Um, though, you know, I tried to paint that picture of what I thought it was. And then for existential eroticism. Um, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah. can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the social contract we're referring to? Because uh, that is uh, a, an interesting piece of the reasoning. Uh, because uh, in the social contract, the women are completely not there. Uh, yeah, just to give the reader, uh, <clears throat> the reader, the listener, a little bit the context. Right. So, uh, dead white guy social contract theory. <laughs> um talks about the origins of our democratic society yes. and yes. gives an idea of what they think society was like before government and everybody but rousseau thought that we were were crazy in one way or another um at least problematic um Rousseau was always very cool. He just thought that everybody was like getting high or something in a tree. That's the way I always think about it. When I think about Rousseau's state of nature, I was like, he just thinks people are in tree houses getting high. I don't know. Um, but, you know, so then the idea is supposed to be what people are like in the state of nature gives reasons for why we need to have the governments that we need to have. And so if you're like Hobbes and you think people are vicious, then you have to have a totalitarian state. You know, if you think like Locke, people are kind of greedy, but, you know, they should have their own stuff for this reason, then you're going to have more of like what the United States looks like today, very private property capitalism. Um, Rousseau is always the debate. I'm a Rousseauian. Um, which is hilarious because Rousseau has the worst picture of women. The worst. And I like, I, it's so bad that I love it because the thing is, is like, he's right. Like that is, especially from like a sex worker position, like that's exactly how women are taught to be. And I was like, Rousseau says we should do it, but he's not wrong that we're taught to do that. Right. And I was like, well, if anyone's giving a realistic a picture of 
what women's training looks like, it's Rousseau. Um, and I really like Rousseau because I think it's very collective in terms of community participation for political purposes. You know, it depends on what position you have because some people think that he's the true totalitarian. Yep. Um, it just depends on how you read him, I guess. Um, I think because because he considered oppression and the role of oppression in his state of nature, I I give him the collective interpretation because I think that if he was more concerned with domination, then he wouldn't have been con so concerned with oppression. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so uh, feminists came in and they were like, why are you doing these things to women? Because they did all these things to women. like you know, traded them and, and used them for, for birthing and property and all these great things. Um, Rousseau used them for dolls and entertainment. Um, and they just talked about all of the ways that um, women have been excluded from the social contract and that that is the reason why we have um, patriarchal sexism today. And then given these things, these are kind of the feminist responses we need to have to it. Um, but they're very framed within the political system and and dealing within sort of the Rawlsian like notion of justice in the public sphere and like the legal system and, and public government and all of those things. But like the like the true Rousseauian I am, I just kept thinking the problem is interpersonal oppression. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it we wouldn't have all of these problems in the institution if they weren't existing interpersonally. And I also think that if everybody was so upset by the problems of the institutions, they would just stop acting on them, but somehow they haven't, mm. which gives a good sign that people are pretty comfortable with the status quo. Um, and so my approach to the social contract was to show how the political conception of a social contract was kind of useless. <laughs> and to show that if we want to talk about how social contract theory can give us true justice, we need to actually talk about a social contract, mm -hmm. which is which is ethical in nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. And still we are with big corporations so that if possible made the institutions even heavier and less personal uh, than before yeah yeah i would say that there's about five investment companies that now own atlanta because of gentrification so like when i moved here everything was all like local underground mom and pop stores everything was independent um and everything right now everything is bought out by the same investment companies and you just keep watching all these local shops close and close and close and close for the for the paint and sip shops um so so yeah so i feel like it's it's gotten worse because of the accumulation of wealth yeah and the repetition of the same then yeah. the person disappears and everything is the same right Anyway, so thank you so much for these uh, parentheses because, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite rich. Uh, the way in which, yeah, the social contract excluded uh, women uh, 
from the origin. And I should be clear that it excludes um, non-Western <laughs> racialized people as well. There's plenty of stuff that, that talks about that. Um, I was, I'm just focusing on women because there was, you know, I was taking like a strain of feminist philosophers to enter into the, enter into the conversation. Right, yeah, <laughs> the social contract yeah, excludes many categories, in fact. And the second book instead, what, uh, what did animate you to set out and write? Well, I come from a family of sex work and addiction and domestic violence. Um, and, and I feel like even in the best intentioned feminist philosophy, they talk about these kinds of women. And I don't think they always do a good job. Um, and, and then they give sort of value ethical evaluations of these women or their choices. And I definitely don't think they do a good job. And I really liked uh, rational choice theory um, philosophy and what always surprised me about rational choice theory and even in feminist ethics was that everyone that I was related to would have been considered irrational. My God, okay. And like a bad chooser and a uh -huh. bad actor. And, and what that turned out to be like, and they would be like, and that's lucky because then they're not morally responsible for anything. And I just kept thinking, like, this is bullshit. Um, this is not what it's like to, to survive in these kinds of, of unfortunate circumstances. And, and to point out, like, I realize, like, you know, domestic violence and addiction and all of these things are, they are everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that you know, I was writing from my perspective, um, one where it was all kind of piled on top of each other, a lot to do with like poverty. Um, and I would always argue with even feminist philosophers about why these analyses of rational choice weren't right. Right. And they would be like, I don't know why you're arguing. Like, yeah, the choices are, you know, that you're family members made like the women in your family made were irrational but that means they're not responsible for them and I'm like bullshit they're not responsible like they worked really hard to make these kinds of choices to help them survive their circumstances and if you told them that they weren't responsible for where it got them which is usually at least better off than it was they'd be really pissed right um and so I just kind of made a new rational choice theory oh, that talked about what it was like for um, women, whether it's lower class women or racialized women or immigrant women or like all of those kinds of women, um, what, it's, what it's like to have to make these kinds of choices and, and what it's like to fight these kinds of conditions um, like my aunt was killed by domestic violence. My sister was almost killed by domestic violence. Oh, every, every woman in my family besides me has experienced domestic violence, um, pretty extensively. Um, they, they've all done sex work. I've done sex work. I could call it sex work light. Um, 
but but all of us have been in and out of strip clubs and and doing these kinds of things um and i just i really wanted to talk about what it's like to be one of those women mm -hmm. instead of hearing other people talk about those kinds of women and also to talk about but a lot of my concern was always that that the choices that we make all, make it harder for other women like they're yeah. like you know like if you're doing sex work you know it it just makes it harder for women in sex work it makes it harder for women to avoid sex work you know if women who have to stay in domestic violent relationships in order to prevent more violence or protect their children or protect their dogs you know like it it makes it harder for other women to leave violent situations. So there are tough choices that women make that make it harder for other women, or even like women who, who are hustling the system through really glamorous kinds of sex work because they fit a certain aesthetic and they make all this money, right? And then it kind of glamorizes it and it teaches younger girls like, this is a, this is a good way. Right. And, and depending on who you are, sometimes that's a good way. Um, but in the larger sphere of things, like women can get sucked into that kind of lifestyle, thinking, thinking it's going to be a good way and then not always enjoying it. Right. So I just I, I, I made a new theory of rational choice theory that talked about <laughs> that talked about that and and also how it relates to oppressing other women. <clears throat> And the, what kind of definition of rationality did you come up with in the end? Uh, yeah. I came up with something called desperate rationality. Mm -hmm. And it is a form of hyper rationality, which means that while whilst the person, you know, I call it the, the privilege of safety, mm. right? While there are these people who are safe in the world, you know, generally speaking, um, are out there making reasonable and rational decisions. Like they don't have to work that hard to be reasonable and rational, right? It's not that complicated. Generally, I look around and it's just not that complicated. Um, but the people who are surviving or navigating these kinds of situations, they have to really, really be rational. And sometimes that's not even the reasonable choice. Like they even know, like, that's not reasonable, but this is my most rational decision. And I talk about um, desperation as an all encompassing state of affairs. So like, sometimes you're desperate. And sometimes like sometimes an action is desperate. And sometimes the situation is desperate. But sometimes for some people, you exist in a world of desperation. Mm -hmm. everything is desperate and when you get into those kinds of fighting and surviving context where every choice that you make determines whether or not you make it to another day um it's like weightlifting for your rationality mm -hmm. like the kinds of rational choices that these kinds of people make every single day to make it just another day is exercising more rationality than any person you see generally on the street and like the people people on the street think that it's irrational because they just can't conceive of what it must be like to be in those situations right so yeah. so yeah so i it's i did a little um oppression-based game theory 
and use that to, to reconceive of a rational choice theory that talked about the highly sophisticated rationality of the choice and the individual moral responsibility that goes with that because you know that's that's good right um but then also is able to because of the state of affairs that's desperate it can connect disconnect the desperately acting women from having moral responsibility for making women's life harder Right. So while it's the case that you have individual moral responsibility for your hyper rational choice, given the desperation, you are not necessarily fully morally responsible for perpetuating women's oppression. Right. Because uh, you need to survive uh, within your system. I mean, you, you cannot go that far. It's yeah. uh, within your setting. And is there space for happiness? somewhere in this kind of rationality or uh, happiness is some luxury i think that everybody has happiness ah, what do you think yeah tell me more i mean i've seen people at a get together laugh and laugh and laugh and even if there's a, a an immediate violent interaction you can turn right around and start laughing again And so it's this idea of like all encompassing happiness doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Like, what does it mean to be happy? And it's like, well, life is hard. Little things are happy. Like little things can make you happy. Like a good candy makes me happy. Like genuinely, deeply happy. Um, and then 20 minutes later, I can get stressed out about something and I'm not happy anymore. And some people may be like, oh, well, that's your like mood, not your state. And I'm like, well, state is, I don't know. I don't even know what it means to have a, a state. Like I'm never in a, like I wouldn't describe anything about my life as the state of shame. Um, I think happiness is fleeting because happiness is frequent. Uh-huh. And things that make you happy come and go and, and things that make you happy change, right? And sometimes you just, can't be too busy to be happy yeah. you need that uh, rationality responsibility are components uh, to like a ladder to get to these fleeting moments uh, or uh, they just happen right? even if uh, you know you are yeah i mean they they do just happen i mean sometimes sometimes you're just at the walgreens and somebody's really nice to you. Yeah. And you could be having a really bad day and they can just make you happy. And then like the outlook can totally change. Um, I always look for those little things and I try to, when I find the little moments of happiness, I try to like grab onto them and I'm like, oh, this, this is nice, right? ask you this is a very personal question did your mom or your sister anyone in your family ever manage to understand what you're doing i i don't have contact with my family so, so when i left i left sometimes i don't know if they know where i'm at mm -hmm. i know that for a lot of my life they had no idea where i was i think because i've been in atlanta long longer than i've been anywhere else i think i i think if you said where is she they might get in the vicinity. And then if you said, what does she do? They might say that I'm a teacher. 
okay, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> close enough, close enough. <laughs> so. Because, yeah, I mean, you are putting out in the world ideas that uh, are going to influence uh, this system. I mean, hopefully we'll be able to see domestic, I, I really like how you put the problem of rationality, actually. I, I work as a philosophical counselor and sometimes uh, I feel really bad, uh, uh, and my family too, was a mess. I, I feel really bad for those people who might not have a word to explain what they are feeling, but my God, if they are more rational than all yeah. the others that are there with your toolbox, uh, capable of explaining this and that and how to arrive this. So <clears throat> I think that revising a theory of rationality, giving another sense to rationality, making rationality less bullying, less, uh, you know, uh, from the top down helps uh, uh, people in general to believe in themselves in moments in which, uh, okay, I'm, uh, I have lost control. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm spiraling. I don't know what I'm doing. I, no, you know what you're doing because you're doing it and somehow you're saving yourself a day after day. Yeah, because there, there's, there's moments, because I really hate when people say things like, you always have a choice. And That's not true. Like, there are lots of times when people don't have a choice. And I think the rationality in that, there, there, when you're in a situation where you don't have a choice, there are dynamics going on in that situation. And all these little mechanisms about how you behave, like, even in that little moment can determine whether or not that's better or worse for you. Like, the outcome is better or worse for you. And so, while you don't have a choice to do X, the way in which you go about doing X without dire consequences requires a lot of rationality. Yeah. Right? So it's not like, oh, I don't have a choice. It's just, oh, you know, like, I guess I don't have to like reason about anything. Like when you don't have a choice, that's when you're in high hyper gear reasoning mode. Right. And I think that that gets lost a lot and people just want to be like, oh, victims. And there are victims. That's one of the reasons why I think a lot of victims don't want to be called victims is because they're like, let's see you survive as long as, <laughs> as long as I have. Absolutely. And takes you, it takes away from you every agency and uh, subjectivity you have in your life. Yeah. Being called that way. Yeah. It's, yeah. It lowers the effort to understand uh, what's going on in your life just yeah I mean if you if you just like stop reasoning and choices where you are in context where you didn't have any choices you wouldn't be so stressed out all the time yeah <laughs> you know what I mean oh yeah look and choreography how does it come in the picture because uh, I mean speaking of uh, agency being there uh, and knowing your choices uh, is there any connection how did you land uh, to choreography I am a circus artist. Oh, wow. Oh my God, that's wonderful. I mean, I've been out of the game for a little while because I like super tore my shoulder and I keep trying to rehabilitate it. Um, but I was a choreographer for circus stuff. That's very hard. I mean- It's very hard. Yes, that's how I tore my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little dangerous. Yeah. 
and tell me more. <laughs> ah, uh, I mean, if if you were to say what is the one thing that made okay, so there are two things in the world that make me truly happy. Uh huh. Writing my philosophy. Right, not all the background stuff like oh, and then Rawls says, and then so and so. Like I really hate that part. That's like the worst. Um, but like when I get to my stuff, I'm like, ooh, this is me go. Like this is, I'm brilliant. Um, so I really like that. Makes me happy. Um, and then Ariel makes me happy, which is I've been struggling a lot being out of the game, like a lot, a lot, because that was just one thing that no matter what it made me completely happy um and I just um I have a disability in my legs and so the way I got into choreography is that I can't do a lot of things that other people can do and there are sort of like basic vocabulary and basic steps that you have to do in order to do the next thing or whatever and technically, I always wanted to be a professional dancer, but because of my legs, I couldn't. So when I found Ariel, I was like, dancing! <laughs> um, and so I got into chore choreographing because I had to figure out alternatives to get from A to B because I couldn't do A the way that it was defined. Um... But I had to come up with like A prime in order to get to B, which typically turned out to be B prime. So like, everybody else was doing this sort of sequence of movement and I would have to completely reorient it to make it possible for me to do something that looks similar to that um and then that just got in it's very theoretical right it's very I I think choreography is the closest thing to doing philosophy or Philosophy is the closest thing to doing choreography. Let's put it like that. I can see that. And it's very interpersonal. I mean, to come back to what we were saying at the beginning, it's uh, a way to be together in an abstraction. It's, uh, I, I can see the bridge and it's so empowering, I imagine. I didn't have the pleasure to ever try Ariel, but uh, wow, it's, must be very enlivening it really is it's very hard it's like I mean in the funny like I do because I'm an aerialist I do solo work ah. and so I do solo choreography ah. so my life is uh as an aerialist is very much like my life as a philosopher there's a lot of theorizing a lot of conceptualizing mm -hmm. a lot of breaking down deconstruction mm -hmm. and it's it's a lot of alone time it's a lot of being with your own thoughts and it's very, very hard and very, very painful. And then when you make your own thing, then you get to show it to other people and, and, and maybe they pay attention or maybe they don't. <laughs> so you're, you're still in the same problem that you started in is like, I made a thing. Do you want to see it? And some people, they don't care. But, but others, so, you know, it becomes the seeds uh, that brings beauty and yeah. meaning uh, to the world, the same way in which uh, it reached you. Because I mean, it wasn't uh, that uh, easy for you to be reached uh, in a moment in which you had to have so many priorities in your life. Uh, nevertheless, there was uh, a certain book that spoke to you or uh, a certain show. I mean, 
you found your way to be. And uh, was there any time in life in which uh, you had to challenge uh, everything you were? Uh, you had to question uh, all that you were and uh, I don't know, had to start from scratch or something? Well, there are two versions of an, of an answer I can give you. Okay. One is probably more mainstream and the other one is probably very dark. <laughs> <laughs> the question is going to be what kind of what kind of mood what kind of tone are you setting for this podcast <laughs> go with the dark <laughs> we want the, the truth the truth Whoa. well i mean okay so it's it shouldn't sound too much like a secret given that one of my goals is to fight stigma of mental health um so I, I have something called borderline personality disorder, mm -hmm. which is very much like bipolar or, you know, um, except for that it's trauma, it's trauma-based. And um, it's something that I've struggled with forever. Um, and I really struggled with it for a really, really long time, like really, really bad. Um, and- When were you diagnosed? 20. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and they kept trying to give me at that point, they were they didn't know how to deal with it. So they kept trying to give me antidepressants and I don't tolerate those. And I was sick and I would just come off of them. And so most of my life I was never able to medicate, um, which is why it was so bad. Um and then in my late 30s, um, things just really got out of hand, like life-wise, stress-wise, like psychology-wise, I was overwhelmed. I was anxious. I was dealing with a lot of problems and, and everything was going on. And, and that's not a, a good storm for people of my ilk. Um, and I tried to off myself. Um, and you know, I went, I'll save you the details, but I went for a really glamorous, imaginative way. Oh, okay. And I wanted to be so creative about it that I failed. Oh. Uh, and then I tried again, because I was like, oh, I'll just try harder. Because um, I didn't want like some sort of like mundane story. I wanted to be like, and then she went out like this. Um, <laughs> and so my, my machinations didn't work out as well as I wanted them to. Um, and then, then I had to start over. Uh, uh -huh. Who am I? Uh -huh. What am I going to do? How do I go forward? It's like my, my whole thing was like, obviously the universe doesn't want me to go. Like I gave it my best shot. Um, Led. You know, there, and then I was like, I guess I'm here for a reason. Uh -huh. You know, I went through that whole thing. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> and then I was just like, I guess it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Here, right. Um, and then I found a psychiatrist who put me on the same medication that they use for schizophrenics and bipolar people. So they put me uh -huh. on like um, seizure medicine. Oh, okay. So like, I guess we're borderline personality disorder. It's like your brain is having emotional seed. I think you know this because you're do you, what you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like my brain was having like, a, like bipolar people have like waves 
Mm-hmm. And people with borderline have like spikes all day long. Yeah. Right. So it was just constant. Exactly. And then I just got to a point where it was like, it was just like lightning in my head all the time. Yeah. Um, and then the medicine helped. Um, oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of dull, like it kind of feels like I'm wearing a heavy blanket, which, you know, I used to live the rock star lifestyle, but that wasn't working <laughs> out for me very well. And now I just live more of the you know, the relatively, relatively cool lifestyle. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's sort of when I got into Ariel. I, I luckily found Ariel not too long after that. And it, and that's always been like my anchor, which is why I've been struggling since I've been injured because I kind of feel like I don't have an anchor right now. Right. I hope you can come back to it uh, soon. Yeah, I tried to, I went last night and tried to do just like some little small baby things. And it was very, like, I'm talking like first day of class. I know. And I went and I was like, this is so hard. Um, (laughs) And I was really embarrassed because like I have a studio that I go to and I have like all my own equipment. Like I have like a rope and a sling and a pulley system and it's all there, you know, and I would go and I would train and like all the people would like watch me and I felt so glamorous. <laughs> and I was in there last night and I was barely doing any, I was crying. I was whining. I was like, I can't believe I can't do this. Um, but it was wonderful. It was wonder. It felt good. It felt good to suck so bad. <laughs> And the life is like that, it, especially yeah. for women, you know, the circle, it seems that we have to start over and over again. And there's a moment in which, okay, everything burns and you have to start from scratch. But then it's not from scratch because at some point you discover that all that you lost, you'll recover it later on. It's... Uh, yeah. very phoenix like it's very phoenix i don't know i guess i went down as a phoenix and came up as a robin i <laughs> i think that if you ask other people who've known me forever like all the people in philosophy they probably can see like shay 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 is like this sort of like maniacal 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 <laughs> force that was I mean, I was just a force, but it wasn't always for good. Um, and then all of a sudden, then there's like Shay, who just kind of like, kind of bobs along, you know? So I, I think people who've known me for a long time would probably, you know, if you ask them like, what's Shay up to? They'd probably be like, I don't know, but she seems a little different. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but as far as I know you now in this moment, uh, I perceive lots of energy flowing from you. <laughs> this is pretty low key. This is this is pretty low key, to be fair. So yeah, I'm sorry for the feeling of the heavy blanket uh, that uh, you you feel to carry, but certainly to me it arrives really a burst of energy and life. <laughs> That's what. That's good. That's good to me in uh, in this moment. Uh, absolutely. And look, yeah, time really, as usual, run by. It's uh, our hour is already gone. I don't know how that happened. What a what a what a not great point to end on, though. To be fair, 
But no, I still have one question. For okay, you. good. So yes, my juicy question that gives the name to the podcast, and I always keep it for uh, for late for later. So. <clears throat> All in all, I mean, looking at your life, at what you wrote, uh, at the fights that you have to fight every day, what do you think, if there's any, uh, uh, is the meaning of life? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I keep it for later. It depends on when you ask me. Mm. Most of the time, I just throw myself on the fainting couch and I say, there is no meaning <laughs> of life. <laughs> And then sometimes I try to be a little more reasonable. Okay. And I think, I guess it really doesn't matter if there is a meaning of life. It's just that, again, I think it's different for people who experience what I experienced. Um, is that the meaning of life becomes less important than, well, I have life. So what am I going to do with mm -hmm. it now? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I feel like the loftiness of the question becomes a moot point. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So I still don't know what my purpose is. Mm -hmm. You know, like sometimes I think it's this and sometimes I think it's that. And sometimes I want to be a good role model. And sometimes, you know, I want to be a friend and I want to help and I want to do all these other things and I want to make sure people have a good time but you know I try to do meaningful things in small ways because that's all I've got mm -hmm. absolutely you know I don't I don't have a lot of um reverberation power mm -hmm. right uh, the circle for my my actions is small and so I try to make small contributions where I can um a lot i mean uh, your biography is impressive shay <laughs> i don't know how small that is because it doesn't seem so small yeah i guess i don't consider much of that stuff like related to my purpose of life i don't know i feel like when i can talk to people about these kinds of things and i can actually make my when i can make my ideas land for regular people mm -hmm. So when I think about like my friends and like, you know, when I can try to like help them, I just, I, my aerial coach just got into a skydiving accident and she shattered both of her legs and her pelvis. Um, that was last week. Um, and she's a professional aerialist and she makes her living doing aerial and traveling circus and doing all these things. So, you know, I've spent time with her in the hospital talking about, well, you know, now that you're stuck here since you made it through lucky you like okay so no, now now what do you think and now what are you going to do and I try to talk to her about being you know having disabilities and like how I because like she helped me like she helped me make the adaptations and I'm like Connie think about it think of all the things that you helped me learn how to do because I can't do what you did right. like now we just do that for you, mm -hmm. you know? And so sort of the despair that she was feeling kind of like lifted a little bit. And then I'm like, ah, I did a good. Um, 
those are the kinds of things when I think about like, what's my purpose of life? I think it's just to kind of help other people feel better when they're in shitty situations. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the happiness in this uh, might be one uh, byproduct. Uh, uh, yeah. One, out, one of the many outcomes, but it's not required. I mean, it's uh, as far as I understand. Uh, being able to lend your ideas, help people uh, to feel better with what you have uh, is uh, meaningful per se. Mm-hmm. And that can bring its own happiness. It's just a different kind of happiness. I mean, it's not the kind of happiness that you get from a cupcake, which is <laughs> sort of max happiness. That's peak happiness, right? Oh, yeah. It's like a little, it's like a little baby happiness. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I really have a thing for cake. I just oh my god, yeah. yeah. Sorry, <laughs> especially for me now. I always think about food. Thank you so much, Shay, for this wonderful interview. For the time you dedicated to to us today, it was really lovely to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, no problem. 